taken place here this morning will deeply touch the heart of Canada, touch the heart of every part of our dominion. For it was on these shores and in this, this place that members of the forces of Canada from each of its provinces, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, shared in the effort to, uh, to take the course of action that would lead, as it did ultimately lead, to the freeing of peoples from a great tyranny. And that was Prime Minister Mackenzie King in a speech at Dieppe, France, in 1946, honoring the service and sacrifice of Canadian soldiers at the Dieppe raid. Soldiers, as the Prime Minister said, from the Canadian forces and each of our provinces, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, who sacrificed in a raid that were commemorating today, August 19th, 80 years after the Dieppe raid. Welcome to a very special commemorative edition of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Member of Parliament Aaron O'Toole, Member of Parliament for Durham, and I'm so pleased to be joined today on this special day of commemoration with Professor David O'Keefe. Professor O'Keefe is one of our most learned historians on the Dieppe Raid. And in fact, his book, One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe, has brought into focus the myriad of objectives that took place 80 years ago today. He's actually in Maine, France, sitting just aside Blue Beach, where he has a trip of Canadians, many of the family members of some of the men who served at Dieppe 80 years ago, survivors of which, of course, were taken prisoners of war. So welcome back to the Blue Skies Political Podcast, Professor David O'Keefe. Well, thank you, Aaron, and uh, welcome, you know, welcome to uh, my little world right now, which is uh, Dieppe. Over, I'm over here for the 80th, and it is something else right now, without a doubt. And you had described to me before we started, you're, you're there with some uh, family members of some of the men who, who survived the battle, and it your, was your first time there that you approached the beach on a ferry. You talked about the emotion not just yeah. in the families, but of yourself. Talk about that for a minute, because I think all Canadians who know our history are thinking about Dieppe today. Yeah, it really was remarkable, to be honest with you. I mean, we just arrived not long ago, and we came across on the New Haven to Dieppe Ferry, which is the exact same route that many of the men took 80 years ago. And I was uh, very fortunate to be asked to come on a, a special tour, commemorative tour, uh, to be the 
historian, obviously, um, with a bunch of family members from men who served uh, with the Royal Regiment of Canada who landed at Blue Beach and also some members of the Black Watch of Canada and also a couple of those from the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, the Rileys out of Hamilton who landed on Main Beach. So there's a group of about 25 of us in all and it was amazing because only a few of them have actually been to Dieppe before. But of course they've been living with the legacy of Dieppe through their fathers and their grandfathers and their great uncles. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, they would hear descriptions of Dieppe, they would read accounts about Dieppe. And of course, they had to deal with the PTSD that was brought on by that one day in August. Um, so many years ago. And today it was really remarkable because we got special permission from the captain of the ferry to go up on deck onto the bow, which people are not allowed on. And um, we were allowed to come into Dieppe for the last 20 minutes of the journey in up on the deck. And it was kind of a, a misty, overcast day until we approached the beaches. And then suddenly, kind of like what happened 80 years ago, everything came into focus and you could see the you know the commando landing areas on the outer flanks you could see green and blue beach and then of course red and white beach right down in the center of dieppe and it was chilling and i i, I say that because you know i've i've been over here many many years i've filmed this is probably my 10th time coming to dieppe and i filmed out of a helicopter and i've been on boats before but this is the first time i really made that approach kind of in the footsteps and to do it with people who were just absolutely blown away by the, the theater, I would call it, of Dieppe, all suddenly, you know, coming into light as if the curtain had been drawn up on, you know, their years of memories, their years of relationships with their, you know, fathers and grandfathers and uncles. It was absolutely remarkable and absolutely emotional, as you can imagine. No, and I, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. And talk about the beach for a minute, because I think many Canadians, if they've seen Dieppe, they probably remember the Bell Canada ad from 20 years ago of the young man with an early cell phone calling his grandfather. Hi, grandfather, I'm in France. And he said, oh, I, you're probably enjoying Paris. He said, no, grandpa, I'm, I'm at Dieppe. And it's a, it's a it's a beach that's very different from a tactical standpoint than say the Juno beach and the Normandy landings describe the, the stony and the, and what the, what the men were facing as they came ashore. Yeah, it's not like Juno Beach. I mean, Juno Beach is flat and it's sandy, uh, generally speaking. And Dieppe is essentially a, a port that's in the socket of very high cliffs. So there are two large headlands that overlook both sides of Dieppe Harbor. And in the main beach itself, which is literally right in front of my hotel where I'm sitting right now, it is broken up into three sectors. One is the Chert Beach or Chert Rock Beach. And I say Chert because basically it's not sand, it's giant pebbles the size of your fist. And it's known as Chert Rock. And then as you come up onto the beach, then you have about a hundred yard promenade, this beautiful grassy green. And then you have the Boulevard de Verdun, which is the, the main road going through the beach area. And then you have buildings. So you have hotels and different types of, you know, of, uh, uh, apartments, et cetera, facing the beach. So if you're coming in on a landing craft, as the men were 80 years ago, uh, you have the Germans on each height 
and you have them straight down the middle. So basically what you're doing is when you're coming in over Main Beach, you're advancing into a horseshoe of fire if the plan does not go according to plan. And of course, you know, Aaron, you have a, a you know, a military background and you will know no plan ever survives first contact. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the sad part of Dieppe. Um, you know, they came up with a very, as I'm sure we will talk about, very complicated and complex plan that that essentially went off the rails almost immediately. Yeah. And, you know, we heard from Mackenzie King in a very rare clip at commemorating four years after the battle. Um, I've read some of his accounts from his diaries where he actually was shocked seeing the beach and what the men faced in Dieppe. And of course, I think one of the yeah. uh, one of the VC winners kind of said anyone that planned this I think should 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 have been shot, you know, given the circumstances yeah. of the beach beach and and the high points of coverage that the germans had but let's talk a minute about the training because um i found this quote from field marshal montgomery who said quote the canadians are first class chaps if anyone can pull it off they will and apparently that was a postscript to one of the training assessments in the months leading up to the Dieppe raid. Um, talk a little bit about the training and and maybe why that, sure. that plan did not survive first contact and why well, the raid became yeah. a dark day in our military history. Well, I mean, Canadians had developed an incredible reputation coming out of the trenches in World War One. I. I mean, they were known essentially as Shane Schreiber calls it, historian Shane Schreiber calls it, the shock army of the British Empire. And, you know, Canadians had been very innovative So in World War One. So by the time we get to World War Two, although we're put on defensive duties for the first two years in Great Britain, defending Great Britain, um, we have now, by late 1941, adopted a, a or pushing for as well, uh, a more offensive kind of role. So we are learning now how to pull off amphibious operations, landings. We're doing some commando training in addition to the regular infantry training. So we truly are, you know, sharpening up the bayonet, but we are still green and there's no substitute for experience in war, um, no matter how well trained you are. But you have to realize that the DF operation was not mounted or planned with Canadians' participation in mind. As a matter of fact, when Mountbatten planned this, he was expecting the entire Royal Marine Division to carry this out. And there was a lot of pressure from Mackenzie King to get the Canadians into the war and also from Andy McNaughton, our, our commanding general over here, as well as his uh, his uh, subordinate, Harry Creer. And so there was a lot of pressure being put on the British. And finally, Churchill stepped in and said, look, there's there's no issues. The Canadians are trained and they have this incredible reputation. And by all means, they should be able to do it. So Mountbatten reluctantly acquiesced to that political pressure, but did keep a Royal Marine commando unit right in the core of the operation. But uh, for Canadians, you know, we actually, in many ways, hoisted ourselves on this operation. We really wanted, as the boys would say at the time, to get at them. And that's exactly what we did on August 19th. But sadly, like I said before, you know, things went off the rails immediately and it turned into the darkest day in Canadian military history. Yeah. And and that dark day was marked by 916 Canadians killed. Um yeah. 2,400 wounded in in one way or another, and uh, almost 2,000 people then taken prisoner. Uh, So the sacrifice was immense. 
So the the military prowess, the training, really, you know, left them uh, in a position that it was an almost impossible task to, was. to take the beach, yeah. right? Well, I think the key was, and this is the problem, um, Mountbatten's Combined Operations, who was responsible for the operation, had been dealing with smaller operations leading up to this. And this was by far the biggest one they had attempted. The problem was there there was a, a mounting hubris and a victory disease, if you will, setting in at Mountbatten's headquarters, because up until now, they had been successful in everything they did, and the casualty rate was relatively low. But as one of the uh, planners, uh, he was actually the original naval force commander, a gentleman by the, uh, who was an admiral by the name of Bailey Groman, um, he noticed that there were corners being cut everywhere there were no there weren't proper appreciations being made that basically Mountbatten was pushing and pushing and pushing for this raid to go ahead so as a result there wasn't the same kind of stringent scrutiny when it came to the planning process and as a result you end up with a bit of a Frankenstein monster of a plan where it's overly complex complicated based on timings uh, at a reasonable level of surprise um, was, you know, basically the underpinning of it all and basically what, uh, you know, in many cases unraveled it. So it just became this complicated monster that really no matter who was carrying this out, whether it be Brits, Canadians or anyone else, and no matter how well trained they are or were, um, as soon as you hit the beaches, not only here proper in Dieppe, but on the flanks as well. As soon as things go off the rails, like they always do, there were not sufficient contingency plans in place to recover from any kind of bruise. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I was doing an interview last week and somebody put it in these terms. They said, you know, Mike Tyson always said that, you know, every boxer comes out with a plan until he takes a punch in the face. Yeah. And, that's, you know, that's basically what happens here. But this wasn't just a punch in the face. This was decapitation. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, you know, most of the units that landed took 94% casualties. Yeah. Now that's think true. about that. You know, well, and let's, let's also, let's also put that yeah. a little more context around it. So the punch so, is coming from uh, the second division, which is landing. D what type of naval and, and air support? was there for this raid and you know um obviously later on that was a critical part of the normandy landings what what support was there for these troops coming ashore well yeah see first of all let me think you know we're probably jumping ahead of ourselves here because i know we want to talk about some of the myths but i think one of the problems is i think people have to get their heads around what dieppe was the architecture for this is not the same as the Normandy invasion. And I'm not just talking about size, but specific purpose. When you have an invasion like Normandy, like Sicily, like the invasions in Italy or anywhere in the Pacific, you need to be able to get the beach, hold the beach, break out of the, or at least expand your bridgehead, build up your bridgehead with an incredible logistical tail, then break out and then swarm to your target in land. So basically in those operations, you're coming to stay, you're coming to set up shop. Whereas Dieppe is very much, as Churchill did say, a one day butcher and bolt. It's basically a butcher and bolt raid. You're coming in, you're looking for some stuff that you need to pick up because it's important for the war effort and you're going to get out. So as a result, you know, sometimes we tend to mix the two and we tend to think that Dieppe 
is a forerunner and all these lessons of, you know, of Normandy were learned on the beaches of Dieppe as, as you know, Mountbatten said, but that really is not the case. There are of course lessons that you can learn from anything, um, but that's not the reason that they were doing it. And as a result, you know, there were plenty of other amphibious operations. The, you know, the invasion of Madagascar just happened a couple of months before. You had Husky, the invasion of Sicily, etc. All of these actual invasions um, were the ones that actually paved the way for D-Day. But we would not have reached D-Day if it wasn't for what was behind, or at least we didn't know what was behind the raid for 70 years, but what we now know was behind the raid. And that was extremely important for the overall Allied war effort. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, let's let's explore those objectives then for DF, sure. the, the Butcher and Bolt, as you said. Um, yeah. The context that a lot of Canadians might hear with respect to Dieppe was this lessons learned. You know, this was a lessons learned that set off the the process that led to success in Normandy. And in fact, the the quote we have from Mackenzie King from four years later, just after the end of the war in 1946, he said this effort was to take a course of action that would ultimately lead to the fleeing of people. So I think even in mm-hmm. the Canadian prime minister's remarks, he tried to link it with the, the ultimate Normandy campaign, but the, the Russians were experiencing heavy losses on the Eastern front. So there's been some suggestion that, that Churchill and, and the allies knew the Russians had already lost 4 million men by that point, that there had to be action on the Western front. Um, there was this mm-hmm. lesson learned scenario. Um, And then you in your book brought forward a really interesting uh, element to the mission that seems to, you know, coincide with the butcher and bolt model, meaning go in with a specific objective. Talk about one day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe, the untold story that you then told related yeah. to enigma and coding walk us through sure. that yeah well i think I mean, we probably have to back up and to understand just how important very quickly um cryptography is to the entire war effort it, it's it's an incredible force enhancer um if you can break into your enemy's codes know what their hopes their dreams their desires their fears new intent you know what their intentions are you have the ultimate ace up your sleeve and in the early part of the war this was pretty much you know one of the most important things that great britain and the entire empire war effort was relying on because you just don't have the resources to police all the areas that you need to police particularly after the fall of france so as a result it was a great effort put put into breaking into messages that were enciphered on the famous german enigma machine and that came in two versions a three rotor and a four rotor and the odds of breaking in without any captured material or any aids where it was for the three rotor 150 million 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 to one so basically like winning the 649 every week for 150 straight years (laughs) uh so yeah that kind of puts it into context and then when they brought in a new version starting in 1941 but it only went operational in 42 the british knew about it in 1941 was a four rotor an upgun version which actually took the odds to what they call 92 septillion to one i being a historian i had to look that number up (laughs) um but it is mind-boggling 
absolutely mind-boggling. So people like Alan Turing, who are geniuses in their own right, um, were very much aided by captured material. And starting in 1940 and into 41, the British realized that the only way that they were going to get into the Enigma machines, either version, was to get captured material, not only the machines themselves, which would help them understand the wiring, but also perhaps more importantly, were the coding and setting sheets, because every day the Enigma had to be set up in a different way. And basically that came out to be 150 million, million, million to one possibilities. So you needed captured material to cut down those odds dramatically. And they were extremely successful in 1941 by actually developing, and we didn't know this until 2014 when it was finally declassified, they had created a pinch policy or a pinch doctrine, and they were called pinch raids, basically the British slang for capturing or stealing. Stealing, yeah. And so what they were doing, yeah, so what they were doing is they had three forms. They had a pinch by chance. So in other words, if you stumble across something in the battle, it looks like a typewriter or anything associated with it, pick it up. And then they had a pinch by opportunity, which was, look, we're going to be putting on an operation or a raid or something like this in an area in which you are likely to capture the material. So be ready. And then the other one, the final one, which were most of the raids that we're starting to find out about now, uh, ones that we long thought were put on for something else. These were actually raids by design or, or pinch by design. So in other words, we have a problem. And we are going to put on a pinch raid to capture this material. But here's the problem. If the pinch raid is so narrow in scope that the Germans will figure out what we're after, then we're in trouble because then they will upgun again. They will. It's a cat and mouse game. So what we have to do now is make sure that whatever raids we're putting on to capture are sufficiently covered by a larger operation that will set out in the German minds that this is just a you know, raid for PR, a raid to help the Russians, a raid to whatever you want to hang on it. So this is what they had been doing. And we never had the concrete proof of this until 2014. And we're still seeing stuff being released now where they were actually throwing on raids in Norway to do this. And Mountbatten's combined operation was having tremendous amount of success breaking into the three rotor, but they had failed on several occasions to get the four rotor or anything to do with the four rotor. So in March of 1942, they find out at the end of March of 1942 that, uh, and think about it in terms of like a virus, um, the four rotor is being used in the Atlantic with the U-boats, and now suddenly Bletchley Park, the code-breaking center, can no longer find the U-boats. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, they don't know where they're going. And so and I'm putting it in very simple terms, but essentially that's it. They, they don't know where they are anymore. The sinkings of allied merchant vessels go through the roof. And the merchant vessels are the absolute lifeblood of the entire allied war effort in the West, and, and even with the Russians. Russian support relies on supplies going to the Russians. So in this case, in March, they find out that not only are the U-boats using them in um, in the Atlantic, but that the four-rotor has now been delivered to Norway, particularly the Tirpitz, the big battleship that's up there, including some of their destroyers. And they find out that um, surface vessels in the channel, the English channel, including Dieppe, have been outfitted with the new machine. They just haven't started using it yet. It's kind of like, you know, a telephone that can take 5G but still uses 4G until the, you know, until the network catches up. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening. So they know. So they know now in March 
that they potentially have a pinch pot of gold in the channel. And Dieppe, having a headquarters, having a supply depot for distribution of this type of uh, machinery and and associated uh, code and cipher material, is the perfect pot of gold. Well, and I'm so glad at, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you took the step back. I'm going to jump in for a minute because yeah, I yeah. think in the last. 20 years, largely because of Hollywood, but also declassification. Yeah. More Canadians, more people around the world know about Bletchley Park. Uh, yeah. Alan Turing, who you mentioned, the brilliant mathematician who was part of the team breaking codes. And then, of course, he was uh, gay and, and died a horrible uh, death by suicide uh, years later. But his work is still fundamental to, to machine learning and AI today. Um, so people are aware of that. Of course, after the war, this could not even be talked about at the, at the highest levels. So the pinch yeah. strategies you talk about, I think some people that follow military history might know that whenever a U-boat was captured or scuttled, there was an effort to try and have that pinch by chance or pinch by opportunity, I guess. But you're saying with the command structure that was in place at Dieppe, there was a real chance to have a raid, but at yep. the heart of the raid, and I guess the commando portion of it, was a specific mission to get these materials. You're absolutely right. Um, and in, in, again, in March, as soon as they find out late March, that's when the planning for Dieppe starts. So a lot of people tend to forget that. They think that suddenly Dieppe you know, comes out of nowhere in the summer of 1942 in response to the Soviets. But if you take a look at the Russian front, the Russians are doing well in March of 1942. They've pushed the, you know, the Germans back from Moscow, and there's no pressure whatsoever at this particular point for any action. What is, there is pressure though, is to break what they call the four-rotor crisis. And now they have a target. They know what it is, where it is. And it's actually Naval Intelligence Division that's responsible for pinching that lays down the basic framework for the Dieppe operation. They're the ones that created and they lay it down and they hand it over to Mountbatten and Mountbatten's boys start to plan it with the input of Naval Intelligence. And there's um there's a planning process here and basically the the dap operation is conceived in outline form and then it goes to the chiefs of staff the chiefs of staff approve it and then it is sent down the line for detailed planning when the force commanders are named but there's only one force that is involved or listed during the outline plan everybody is player to be named later except for the royal marine commandos who are tasked with the pinch, they're in it right from the conception or inception of the raid. And then everything else is built up around them. Originally, Mountbatten wanted to use the entire Royal Marine Division. The Canadians then decided that they wanted to get into action. Churchill agreed. And, you know, to kind of put it in football terms, um, the Royal Marines were the ball carrier. They were the running back. And the Canadians came in to be the offensive line. And so that's really the way it shapes up. And now, yeah, and now we're building up. So, but what I'm telling you now, we didn't realize 
until, you know, 10 years ago when we have a series of declassifications. And now you understand what the Royal Marines were actually doing there. For 70 years, we had no clue. They were a kind of a mystery. In other words, what do you mean they're going in? What what are they even doing on this raid? Why are they going into the port? None of it ever made sense yeah. until yeah. the releases. And now you can see the entire thing just falls into place. You understand how Dieppe you know, was supposed to unfold, and you can actually take a more sober look at the lessons learned. Unfortunately, most of the narrative that we know was ex post facto. It was all written by Mountbatten and his lead planner, Hughes Hallett, after the war, in part for security purposes, because they couldn't talk about what they were doing. But also, you know, it's an exercise in branding, and they're trying to maintain their brand. He's very ambitious. He wants combined operations to, you know, to be very dominant amongst the Whitehall, you know, amongst Whitehall. So he's, everything is done to distance himself, distance his lead planner, distance combined operations from the disaster on the beaches. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you know, we step up and kind of wear it as a as a badge of courage, a badge of honor. And I would argue justifiably so um, in the sense that, you know, what Mackenzie King said at the end was absolutely right. Every stretch of of Canada was touched by this. Yeah. Well, let's every province lost a son. Let's add to the intrigue. Uh, and uh, of your book and of this objective of the mission. And I love your analogy. So the commandos were carrying the ball. The the yep. Canadian regiments involved, whether the Rileys, the South Saskatchewan, you know, some great war fighters from across the country were the offensive line. And yep. one of the offensive coaches planning on the sidelines, the naval intelligence refer- you refer to, was none other than Ian Fleming, who, of course, Canadians and the world knows after the war, penning James Bond. This this intelligence aspect of the mission is fascinating, too. Talk about that for a moment. It is. I mean, you can imagine when I stumbled across this and realized the connection with Ian Fleming, my eye kind of my eyes rolled because, of course, you know, since the end of the war, we've heard a lot of things. I mean, some people think he's James Bond. Others think he was, you know, just some faceless bureaucrat who was talking way above his, you know, way above his head after the war. Um, That's not the case. I mean, for this book, I had to go back and I had to take a look at who the real Ian Fleming was during the first part of the war. And he was actually much more fascinating, much more important than we thought, but nowhere near James Bond, if you will. He was the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey. And as such, John Godfrey used him as kind of a a go-to guy, a hatchet man, right? A fix-it. And whenever there was an issue that needed to be solved, Fleming was brought in. He also carried an incredible liaison portfolio. Um, Because he was the assistant to the director, he would um, carry out liaison with MI5, MI6, Ministry of Economic Warfare, Political Warfare Executive, Bletchley Park, the Americans, the OSS, the FBI. I mean, he really had a finger in every pie that was going on in the intelligence world. But one of his big portfolios was pinch operations. And he started, you know, uh, advocating for these and planning for them back in 1940. So his signature is, are, is over all of them, essentially, but more so in Dieppe, because this turns out, as we find out, is the only operation that he actually took part in. 
and he never got ashore. But to use perhaps another sports analogy, um, when they captured the material um, that they hoped to do in the port of Dieppe, they were going to bring it out in a pipeline, and he was going to take it from one of the command ships and take it straight back to England as he as if he was an anchor man in a relay. He was going <laughs> to bring, if you will, the Holy Grail home. Um, and that was the only time, as far as we know, in the Second World War that he ever came into a combat zone, uh, at least uh, as an active participant. But he had um, created a special commando unit that was drawn out of the Royal Marines to actually get into the port, get the material and get out with it. And this is different because what we've discovered um, through this is that there's actually a pipeline an infiltration pipeline and an exfiltration pipeline, which is very sophisticated for 1942. I mean, we're, I, I think, to be honest, if I look back, this really is the origins of modern special operations. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. So this DF is a much more sophisticated operation than we ever expected. And it was, you know, hidden under a cloak of secrecy for 70 years. Fascinating. And, you know, talking about the commandos, the, the, the work of the British and Americans, I should add, there were uh, over 200 uh, British and, and Americans, like non-Canadians, killed in the raid as well. And we, we have to honor their sacrifice. So you talked about Fleming being there to take the, the football, so to speak. And I guess the U.S. president, they still call the codes the football, right? So our analogy yeah. is a good one, David. Um, <laughs> did they get they did they get? the enigma or any of the materials they wanted was that part of the objective met at all okay it was not but it wasn't for lack of trying as a matter of fact get back to our football analogy they were on the goal line as a matter of fact their radio messages were coming back that the canadian troops that were going to cooperate or and there were quite a few of them almost half the raiding force was in direct cooperation with the royal marines to get them in and out of their objective that they were actually, if you will, on the goal line, which meant that they were getting close to the port. This message was erroneous, but in the fog of war, it just lit up Canadian command to think, you know, that they were, or the command out at sea, um, to think that they were that close to their objective. So the Canadian commander on the spot, General Hamilton Roberts, Ham Roberts, as he was known, and he was selected specifically because he was, you know, as they called him, a thruster of a commander. In other words, he would just bang his head against a brick wall until he finally broke through the brick wall or his head exploded. But that's exactly what they wanted for an operation like this. So, you know, back to our football analogy, they're on the goal line. And Roberts basically, and I hate to say this, but we're going to look at American football. Um, he, um, Roberts runs the ball four straight times and all four times the Germans stand on the goal line and they make their goal line stand. And, you know, this is when the Essex Scottish come in, they're rebuffed. Then the Royal Marines or the Fusilier de Montréal are sent in, they're rebuffed. Then the Royal Marines are sent in over Main Beach instead of going into the harbor, they're rebuffed. And then he's still calling for more reinforcements to come in. And finally, the raid is called off. But you can see the kind of, you know, the kind of effort that was put into this. And if you just take a look at the casualties, 55% of the fatal casualties are taken in direct pursuit of the pinch objective. 
and over 65 of the total casualties in the raid. So there's no ifs, ands, or buts when it comes to what they were attempting to do here and how far they were willing to go to do it. Wow. And, and you know, I know when your book first came out um, a number of years ago now, there were some uh, other historians that tried to sort of poo-poo this new uh, this new aspect of, of the raid. And of course, these, the conventional wisdom was this, well, it was preparation. It was, it was, you know, placating the Russians. It was Mountbatten's hubris. It was Canadians wanting to get into the war in Europe after, you know, the, the capture of our soldiers in Hong Kong. But what you're saying, this is a classic pinch mission and has all the hallmarks of the raid itself being essentially a diversion for this critical pinch for the Enigma and the code materials. Yeah, essentially that's what it is. I mean, I would argue that it's it's gone beyond classic to more Frankenstein monster <laughs> in the sense that, you know, Mountbatten is trying to make these raids bigger and bigger because it's not just getting incredible political concern, uh, you know, uh, currency in Whitehall and particularly with Churchill, who knows everything about cryptography and he just absolutely loves it and gives a blank check to Bletchley Park. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's also tacking on other objectives and so basically what we see is an exercise in mission creep where you start off with the pinch operation at the core of this and you say well okay we have to build this up to make it look like other you know another type of raid so let's bring in other elements let's open this up to other intelligence agencies later on as the planning has already been solidified and so as a result now it 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 takes on a life of its own it has so many moving parts so many players are in the mix and it, it basically becomes a runaway train, essentially. So what starts out as something that I would argue is extremely altruistic, um, turns out to be a disaster, not because what they were after, you know, there was nothing wrong with what they were after because it meant everything to the war effort at this point in 1942. But the method that they adopted um, left a lot to be desired, to say the least. And yeah. So that's basically where we are, you know, with the new historiography that has come out of the new research. I should also say that, you know, I've just published a, a second edition because the first edition that I did was based on 15 years of research and 150,000 pages of material. And when I published the first one, um, the British government released uh, a hundred or yeah, probably about another 10 or 15,000 pages of material on signals intelligence and a lot of it had to do with pinches and pinch doctrine, etc. So I was able then to harness that and basically bring into a, a second edition, which is, you know, case hardened, if you will. This actually sounds uh, perfect for a movie, but that's another another issue <laughs> altogether. Let's let's talk for a moment because you talked about, you know, the reputation of Canadian soldiers after World War One, it was easy to immortalize, you know, victory at Vimy Ridge, Hill 70. Mm -hmm. um, our first two uh, army engagements uh, of World War Two, of course, the impossible defense of, of, of Hong Kong, and then mm -hmm. eight months later, Dieppe, it's harder to deal with that. Um, but the one thing I've often said, particularly when I was veterans minister and I had the honor of meeting some Dieppe veterans. Mm -hmm. It is about the sacrifice. Uh, Canadians who step up to serve their, their country, serve the cause. 
and are willing to to pay the sacrifice, not asking what the objective is, but but serving a cause mm-hmm. higher than them. The bravery at Dieppe was incredible. Let's talk briefly about the two yeah. Victoria Crosses, uh, Padre John yeah. Foote from the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry and Cecil Merritt from the South Saskatchewan Regiment, who is from Vancouver. Uh, yeah. Foote was from Maydock, Ontario, and ironically became the provincial member of parliament for my riding of Durham after the war. And, and Merritt became a member of parliament after the war. Foote was the only Canadian padre to receive the VC. Talk about his contribution for a moment. Well, when he arrived on the beach with the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, by this time all hell was breaking loose and the men could barely get off the the church rock. And when they did, some of them did get into, there was a big casino on the beach um, and the Germans uh, were had certain units stationed in there, but it was like relatively lightly defended, but not all around. Um, and they ended up getting into the casino and fighting essentially hand-to-hand and room-to-room inside, uh, part of the Rileys. The other part of the Rileys were pinned down on the beach because a lot of the engineers were killed right off the bat, and they couldn't blow the the barbed wire that was in front that was preventing them from getting into the city. And, of course, you can imagine that the Germans had machine guns and small arms fire, and they had the entire beach taped, so they were bringing down mortar and artillery fire. And the, you know, the casualties were just mounting up. But the entire morning, foot ran from one wounded man to another to another, dragging him back to relative safety on the beach. And he was just everywhere um, where there was somebody who needed that kind of aid. And also, too, I understand there's another historian that's doing some work on this. I understand that at one point he may have actually manned a Bren gun to provide covering firepower because he was so fed up with the Germans going after men who were already wounded on the beach. And then finally, um, he was one of the last men off the beach. He was tending to the wounded and trying to get them onto the landing craft when they were pulling out. And he jumped on the landing craft and then realized the men here on the landing craft going back to England don't need me as much as the men who are going to be taken prisoner. He stepped off and gave himself up just to be with the men. Incredible. And I've heard the story of the Bren gun uh, around, uh, gosh, maybe 15 years ago. A number of yeah. us started a foot luncheon at the Albany Club in Toronto. We should have you speak at it, David. And uh, oh, we do it. Answer. We do it with the Rileys. We've had his battlefield uh, chalice and other things on display, and the the bravery and the love the men, the POWs that came back after the war, had for foot was yeah. so profoundly deep that. Uh, that he was truly special. I think they probably suppressed the Bren gun story because that doesn't really jive with the description of an honorary Captain Padre who's... who's well, there. that's it. A man of the cloth deciding. <laughs> right. But, you know, uh, you know, humans are humans and there's a limit to everyone. And, I, you know, one gets the impression that that was it, if, if that indeed did happen. But I understand that it was actually in the write-up for the Victoria Cross and they ended up eliminating it because I guess you're right. It just didn't seem to be befitting. Maybe not a man of a cloth, but certainly a human, without a doubt, under those circumstances. But yes, I mean, just imagine that. He had a chance to escape, but he saw a higher duty and went with the men. And 
speaking of that, um, Cecil Merritt, um, I was reading his uh, his Victoria Cross citation the other day, and he was famous for leading from the front as a commander uh, with a phrase, come on over, telling his men to, to follow him and both into battle and then trying to get some of them to uh, to safety and evacuation. Talk about merit a little bit. Exactly. Well, I mean, Cecil Merritt's day begins with a complete screw up. Um, he is supposed to land at Green Beach on the eastern side of a tiny little river. It's more of a stream called the Sea River. But the landing craft deliver him to the western part. And as a result now, instead of coming in behind the German bunkers, which are covering the river in a small bridge that goes across it, he now has to go across the bridge and get his men across this bottleneck that's under direct fire from German machine guns that are housed in bunkers on the cliff, or not the cliff, but the slope that leads up to the top of the cliff on Green Beach. So you can imagine at this point that you know, generally speaking, a battalion commander is not supposed to be leading from the front. He's supposed to be directing the battle of his companies. But when all hits, you know, everything hits the fan like it did now, sometimes personal leadership and courage is the only thing that has a chance of winning the day. And that's exactly what he does. He ends up basically charging over the bridge multiple times. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was four times under withering machine gun fire. Miraculously, he's he's not you know, fatally wounded or, you know, you know, struck down immediately. But each time it's come, follow me now, let's go. And he brings part of his unit over each time and eventually succeeds in getting those two, or I think it was two, two mm -hmm. machine guns silenced. But his great angst, as I found out today, believe it or not, on the boat, there was a gentleman who's part of our tour who had the most incredible experience with Cease Merritt 30 years ago, which would have been on the 50th anniversary. He ended up on the same New Haven ferry coming over to Dieppe with Cecil Merritt. And he introduced himself and he asked Cecil Merritt, asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm coming over to pay tribute. And he said, well, come on, you come talk to me. And they went up and they stood on the bridge of the uh, or at least on the top deck. And Cecil Merritt just apparently unloaded on him and told him how frustrated he was when he did what he did. He was just pissed off that everything was going you know, nothing was going according to plan. He was also, you know, pissed off that he only had 30 minutes to get to his target. And he always felt, despite his heroism to his own men, that somehow he had kind of let the team down because he could not reach his objective. And to be honest with you, it was a ridiculous timing to start with. And if you ever see the terrain at Dieppe, you will understand that a half an hour to get from, you know, from Green Beach up to the top of the cliffs overlooking Main Beach, while knocking out a series of German fortifications was just never in the cards to start with. But then, of course, you know, after he got them over the bridge came the horrific realization that he was not going to get his target. And now you've got to get or his objective. Now you got to get your men out. Yeah. And so the same thing, he ended up taking them back and trying to get them on. And then finally they got away, but he was taken prisoner as well. So both foot and um, Cease Merritt were not awarded the Victoria Cross until after they got back, or at least if they were, they didn't know about it. 
yeah. until after they got back. So it's the, the two of them are absolute stellar examples of what heroism is in battle. Um, and also, you know, I would argue, you know, poster children for what it takes to earn the Victoria Cross. Uh, earn it, as we talked about in a, our previous podcast. Look, at Cease Merritt was twice wounded. And I, I played the clip of Mackenzie King speaking on August 19th, 1946 in Dieppe. The House of Commons had honours that uh, that Louis St. Laurent headed up, uh, the Conservative spoke, and who was late to get there because it was put on at the last minute was Cecil Merritt himself. Uh, members from all sides were wanting to hear from Cecil Merritt in the House that day. He said, Mr. Speaker, I thank the House for their more than kind reception of me this morning, which I would like to accept on behalf of all those who took part in the raid. Um, he didn't yes. want, nor did foot to be singled out when they they lost men that they they loved they served with um and they wanted their bravery to represent the unknown bravery of so many uh some of whom exactly. known unto god as you say um a remarkable story one day in august august 19th 80 years ago today one Day in August is also Professor David O'Keefe's incredible book talking about the Pinch mission and and really the origins of the Dieppe raid itself. David, thank you so much for helping us commemorate this very important day in Canadian military history and give our best to the participants of your tour walking that stony beach this week in France. I certainly will. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate this. It's uh, it's an incredible pilgrimage that every Canadian needs to make once in their life. Absolutely. And as we've said, honoring sacrifice is not about the triumph or the victory or the strategic brilliance of the objective. Someone who puts their life on the line for their country, for their friend, for their comrade, that is at the heart of commemoration and remembrance. And there are so many examples of that at Dieppe. And that is why today's special Blue Skies political podcast is meant to be part of our country's effort to commemorate. I've been so fortunate to be joined by Canada's Dieppe expert, someone who served in uniform himself, Professor David O'Keefe. I invite you to check out One Day in August, this incredible book on the mission. I will be posting a video of Mackenzie King's speech, some more materials. It's up to us to take the torch of remembrance because there's very few people now left from World War II. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Thanks for being part of this Blue Skies special commemorative podcast. <laughs>